Hello and welcome to this episode of Radio Free HPC. This is where we talk about supercomputing, high-performance computing, and other technology topics. I'm Dan Olds, joined as always by my co-host Henry Newman from Seagate Government Solutions and Shaheen Khan from Orion X. Now let's get to the show. Hello and welcome back to another scintillating episode of Radio Free HPC. I'm Dan Olds, joined as always by Henry S. Newman and Shaheen Khan. How you doing, guys? Yeah, excellent, Dan. How are you? I'm okay, I guess. Henry? I'm always excellent, except when I'm not. Very true. Truer words were never spoken, and also more inane words were never spoken. So today, we're going to talk some HPC in the cloud. That's been something we've all been hearing about, right? The time has come. The time is here for some problem. Time isn't here for others. Again, inane, good. (laughs) (laughs) There's some problems that require too much data that you can't get it in fast enough. In the cloud. It has to be, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. What really comes down to with me when you're talking about anything in the cloud, but particularly HPC in the cloud, is it comes down to the economics. And that's what drives everything, Dan. It certainly is. And that's the first thing and the last thing that I looked at in evaluating it, at least for some clients that I've been talking to. But any general thoughts before we dive into this? Well, I guess one thought I have is HPC in the cloud is an interesting problem in terms of configuration. Because different applications have different memory requirements, different computational densities, different GPU counts that are effective. Yep. And having a generic machine in the cloud versus an application-specific configuration for a set of applications that site is running is probably a lot more expensive to buy the general machine that runs everybody's applications. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Now, Shaheen, you've been known as a guy who has said that the cloud will take over everything eventually, with no exceptions. What I have said is that that's where the growth is going to be. Well, that's not the same thing. You're backing off now. You're backsliding. No, no. I've I've got slides going back about a decade that say the same thing, that when client server showed up, it didn't eliminate the mainframe world. Yeah. True. In fact, the mainframe market is probably still about the same size as it was 10 years ago. It's actually still growing. Yeah. In terms of MIPS. And also in terms of dollars. Now, it's shrunk. You don't have all the different players. You got fewer players. And then when the cloud showed up, it doesn't mean that whole, for lack of a better word, client-server market is going to go away. That's still going to be a good, in my mind, $100 billion market going forward probably forever. But the cloud is where the massive growth is going to be. So if you want to see $500 billion or a trillion-dollar market, that would be the cloud. Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can't see that the cloud is ever going to get bigger than the on-prem market. Ah, okay. Well, there we might disagree. Yeah, we would definitely disagree. Now, it is also morphing. For example, these co-location facilities are relatively strong, and they add really good value in certain situations. They are somewhere between on-prem and cloud, so that's part of the market. But fundamentally, back to kind of how you guys started it, to me, it's a question of economics, configurations, security, data, and it's a question of governance. I think governance may end up trumping all the rest of them. Well, I still go back to my point. It's also a function of the type of application and the type of inputs that are required There's only a limited amount of bandwidth in the universe. And if you're dumping all your data from some sensor into your home environment or sensors, it's going to be pretty hard to move them to a cloud. And if you do move them to a cloud, then you become controlled by all that data that the cloud now controls. 
And if you have it dumped directly into the cloud, you're going to pay for that privilege. Yes, you will. Bandwidth is not free. But those are under my data and config categories. Yeah. And governance, whether you have access and how much it costs you to get the data out. All of those are part of the data config governance. Well, you know, getting to the economics part of this, I did a lot of research for a client and going to share some of that with you, that just a single instance of AWS, two CPUs, if you do a three-year commitment for it, one server, 659 bucks a month if you do a three-year commitment to it. I find that to be pretty costy because that's about eight grand a year. That's not even a fantastic server. It's only 16 physical cores and 244 gig and 10 gigabit ethernet connection. Now I've priced that out from a leading vendor and including paying for the annual energy and it's actually the same CPU at InfiniBand speeds, the server cost for the total three years is 14 grand. And my server is actually giving you 64% more performance, more cores. I'm giving you 44 cores. But, you know, it's not all about cores, Dan. It's memory bandwidth. Well, yeah, but we're talking about x86 servers, Henry. Does it mean, does it mean the memory gyms are fully populated? True. You can't find that out from Amazon, though, how they're populating their memory dims. No, you can't. But I just thought I'd mention it. Oh, I know. No, I agree. And I'm, I am comparing frequencies. I'm comparing everything that's possible to compare. Then are these dedicated servers or are you sharing them? I think they're dedicated. I think their value proposition is at its best when you are in a shared facility and they can amortize the cost and you just get VMs assigned to you. For them, that's probably it. But I think this is probably some sort of a shared system. It's not, you're not buying the hardware from them. You're buying it's not the bare metal buying... dedicated. No, I'm getting. You're getting the capacity from them, and this is actually a, again eight grand a year. This is probably the cheapest option from Amazon on a CPU only server. Well, the occasional data I have seen, and that's been a few times over the past few years, and this comes from actual IT departments. If you have a very small requirement, mm -hmm. then cloud is good. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for a particular configuration for not a very long period of time, then that's excellent because then you just, you know, that's no different than bureau services. Let me jump in real quick here. If you're looking up for, say, a month, that monthly rental cost goes from $660 to $1,532. But still, if you just want to run something for a month. Okay then instead of going through the whole rigmarole of ordering something and waiting for it to arrive and installing it and sure. provisioning it and all of that, you just pay 1500 you're done, and you're out. For only one server. But yes, I agree. And you may not even have the wherewithal to do it. Where am I going to house the server? And yeah. is my power conditioned? Or when am I going to network it? So all of that makes sense. The message to me was that for small usage, cloud is great. For super massive large user... The cloud is great again because you can go cut a special deal. You can go and say, hey, Mr. Cloud Provider, I'm bringing you this massive capacity for essentially ever. Let's negotiate. If you're Netflix or somebody, perhaps. But if you're doing a very large quantity, you can get off of the standard price list. Sure. You can negotiate other deals and that can make it worth your while. But if you're in the middle, you're probably paying too much. Your mileage varies and all that, but that was my walk away. Well, if you're talking about HPC, you're probably in a lot of instances talking about GPUs as well. 
And this is where the cost just with two GPUs is over 800 bucks a month with a three-year commitment. And that's close to 10 grand a year with two GPUs. Now, apples to apples, you need to add another $7,000 of Amazon capacity to equal what a two-way server with two GPUs would give you performance-wise. And what I've configured is a system that would cost 37 grand and have much better bandwidth, more cores, about a overall 20% higher performance that would amortize out to 1100 a month as opposed to 1400 a month from Amazon. But what's the IO bandwidth? What's the parallel file system? Is MPI IO supported? There's all kinds of questions That's right. that are unanswered. Absolutely. And again, unanswered because Amazon doesn't specify. Well, also unanswered because you haven't asked them. No, I <laughs> haven't they asked. Probably them. have solutions for them. Yeah, I'm sure. And, I'm sure I can and, find and they, the file. And they system. do have a growing HPC presence. Yeah. Uh, as does Microsoft, as does Google, as does IBM, and other international ones. So I think what's happening is the segmentation of the market into cloud ready and not cloud ready. How do you figure that? Because there are some apps that are running in the cloud. There are some apps that are running in the cloud, but not not many. It's a growing piece of the HPC market. So where's that growth coming from? Yeah, but it's growing from a it's growing from a place of zero. Right. And in the early days that growth can look really significant and then it kind of tapers off as it usually does. But the fact that some applications are running means that they're ready to run there. So the question is what are those apps and why are they running in the cloud? There's lots and lots of HPC type of calculations that don't get done in small medium businesses, for example, that could be run in cloud because they're they don't have enough load to keep these systems busy throughout the year. You just want to do a simulation here, a simulation there. Yeah, that's a good cloud case. That's exactly my point. Is that I think the market is segmenting towards the application base that can be used in the cloud and that cannot. Now you could make the counter argument that that's incremental addition to HVC. These are the people yeah. who otherwise would not have done HVC at all. I would I would argue that. Or they would go do some academic industry consortium thing to gain access for their occasional use. Or they would struggle doing it on their PCs on premises. They'd buy a workstation. Yeah. That's right. That's possible, but I think nevertheless it shows growth. And there are also some examples of really large calculations. It's hard to tell whether those are ongoing forever or were they just kind of a demo. And then the other thing, like Henry was saying, was data, is that once you put your data in there, getting it out can be very expensive and time-consuming. Very expensive and very time So you do. So you have to be worried about that. You have to worry about getting locked in. Yep. Yeah, that's very true. Now, if, if you do a 4 and 8 GPU, that's when you're getting to some serious money. 3200 bucks a month with Amazon, forty grand for a year on a three-year basis. And what I've found is that the advantage to doing on-prem is if you adjust it for performance, it's about 60% cheaper. Have you included the people part of it, Dan? That's true. People part of it is not included People aren't free. You might be free, but I'm not free. I agree. The thing about including the people part is it really depends on what size data center we're talking about. Are we talking about a data center that's starting at zero, zero people and decides, uh-oh, we need a four GPU server to run these numbers, and they have to hire someone just for that? 
or is it a medium-sized data center that we're just adding Correct. another couple of servers to it, and we don't have to hire someone else? I don't, don't disagree. There's still a cost to it, but we don't know. And there is a scenario that says, as time goes by, customers' ability to build their own data center and run it becomes limited. Not everybody can do that. If you happen to have a data center, great. Then you can think about it like this. But if you really have nothing, and this is what the scenario with startups, I mean, that's why none of them have a data center, because they don't have the wherewithal, they don't have the money, they can't allocate the capital budget, so they just go with a cloud provider. And then as they grow, they sort of end up being in there except some famous cases where they get big enough to say, okay, we're going to bring it back in. Right. And, and I would say also, and this is an important consideration, is that the people who are doing cloud data centers really know their stuff. They build their own racks. They do. They build, they their, do. They build their own power supplies. They build their own everything. And it is more cost efficient than most of the stuff that OEMs are doing, or or if it wasn't, they'd just be buying racks and stuff from OEM. So they're bending they're bending their own metal. That's part of their profit margin. Well, that's my point. But it, what Shaheen is saying, at some point, if they get big enough, you're going to lose the ability to do your own because they're going to control the whole market. I don't think so at all. I said if they get big enough. That's possible. It's possible. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is I don't think they'll get big enough to where they control the entire market. And the final data point is at the eight GPU level, which is going to cost you seventy five hundred bucks a month, ninety grand a year based on a three year commitment. And me, I can get you into that server for ninety seven thousand dollars total. And again, outside of people, your cost, your monthly cost is going to be twenty seven hundred bucks. And that includes service, that includes liquid cooling, that includes power, that includes everything I can come up with. To me, that's what really decides this. It's the economics. Any other closing notes? I hear a noise in the background there. Oh, well, yeah. Catch of the day boat is coming up. Here it comes. And there it is. It's docked. Who's got a catch? I've got a catch. And I think this is important in a different way. And this could happen to anybody. Tom's hardware. It's not Krebs on security. I, you know, I, I, I look at other things. <laughs> really? Yeah. And I like Tom's hardware. Tom's hardware is good. Intel found a flaw in their data center SSDs that had to do with the diagnostic tool and the high vulnerability. And this is my point. Until you go through an external testing, going through like the FIPS process, for FIPS 140-2, no one is really red teaming your hardware. So going through these government standards, whether it's GDPR testing for common criteria or FIPS for your hardware crypto module or both, makes some sense to have external people looking at your hardware and basically validating that what you say you did for security actually is secure. So... I'm a big advocate of security testing and third-party security testing for hardware components. And I think this is a good example why That's it's a, a great good point. thing. Yeah, I, I heartily agree. Excellent. Totally agree. What do you got, Shaheen? I came across the Turing Award lecture given by none other than Ken Thompson. The title actually will be interesting to you, Henry, especially because it's called Reflections on Trusting Trust. The subtitle is, to what extent should one trust the statement that a program is free of Trojan horses? 
Perhaps it is more important to trust the people who wrote the software. Now, I'm going to read you just one paragraph out of this and stay with me because it's just funny. He says, in college, before video games, we would amuse ourselves by posing programming exercises. One of the favorites was to write the shortest self-reproducing program. Since this is an exercise divorced from reality, the usual vehicle was Fortran. Actually, Fortran was the language of choice for the same reason that three-legged races are popular. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice! Are you, Gene? That's just mean. <laughs> that is just plain old simple mean. <laughs> so this is really a great paper. I'll put the link up. More precisely stated, the promise to write a source program that when compiled and executed will produce as output an exact copy of its source. If you've never done this, I urge you to try it on your own. The discovery of how to do it is a revelation that far surpasses any benefit obtained by being told how to do it. So this is really good. It's like a von Neumann machine. You can do it in a stack machine, I guess, but it is actually a little complicated. I could see me doing that once and then having it completely overrun every bit of storage I have. It would be self-infecting <laughs> myself. You would create your own Trojan horse. I would, yes, yes. And it'd get out to my network-attached storage. It would just start writing DVDs. I would be done. And speaking of done, I think on that note, we can wrap up this episode of Radio Free HPC. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening. And we'll be right back at you with another episode very soon. Boom. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Free HPC. And as a quick note, the views and opinions of Henry Newman are his and do not reflect any policy or position of Seagate Government Solutions or Seagate Technology. Thank you for listening.